It's Thursday. At least Thursday is the day that we're releasing this episode. So it's Thursday. Do you know where your monsters are? Well, I've got some right here on Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to the show by playing a little bit of music. Yeah, we kicked off this episode with the song One Megaton B. It's from the band The Inframen. They're a cool surf band out of Providence, Rhode Island. This is from their album Live from the Mineral Kingdom, New Year's 2016. Check them out at inframen.bandcamp.com. This album, three bucks. Heck of a deal. Some awesome music. And check out the rest of their music offerings, too, because they actually did a kind of sort of surf soundtrack to Frankenstein, the, the, the original 1931 Frankenstein. It's kind of cool. So check that out when you're done listening to this episode of this podcast. I want to welcome you to the show. I'm excited because I've got somebody on the show who hasn't been on in quite some time. He's a Monster Kid author. He's one of us. I've recently appeared in a book with him, and I'll mention that when I formally introduce Dwight Kemper back to Monster Kid Radio. And we're going to be talking about the 1958 film Frankenstein, 1970, featuring our man, Boris Karloff, one of the patron saints of Monster Kid Radio. We, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing now. We wouldn't love these movies if it wasn't for Boris Karloff. And to have him in another Frankenstein film, finally, after so many years, well... It's something special, and Dwight and I both really like the movie. We're going to talk about that, and we kind of meander a little bit and talk about a few other things along the way, and it's a fun conversation. Now, before we get to that, we have some feedback from some listeners here. Let's kick it off with an email from Jeremy C. Derek, I wanted to throw a question out to the Monster Kids who are from the Baby Boomer generation. Many moons ago at a family dinner, I mentioned watching Mad Monster Party to my aunts and uncles. They remembered this film, and were all under the impression that Francesca was stylized after Anne Margaret. For over a decade now, I assumed this to be true. Anne Margaret was not mentioned during your talks with Joe Stuber, and also not mentioned during the email feedback from the last episode. Did any other baby boomer generation monster kids assume that Francesca was Anne Margaret? Well, thank you for all you do, and all things monster kid. Well, Jeremy, it didn't come up, but I could totally see the connection, and the comparison. I did some brief research, all kind of surface-level internet stuff, and I can't find anything that says, yes, Mad Monster Party's Francesca was based on Anne Margaret, although a lot of people see the Anne Margaret-ness in the Francesca character, as well as a little bit of Mamie Van Dorn and a few other actresses here and there. Uh, but yeah, I could totally see the Anne Margaret. You know, I do know that we've got listeners from the Baby Boomer generation in the Monster Kid Radio audience, original Monster Kids, so if anybody's got any solid information about whether or not this character, Francesca, from Mad Monster Party was based on Anne-Margaret, well, I'd love to hear it. Please write it in to monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Of course, if you are new to the show, Mad Monster Party was a movie that Joe Stuber from Comic Book Central and I talked about a couple of weeks ago. You can find it in the archives at monsterkidradio.net. Now, last week we had Frank Schildener on the show. And we got an email from another listener who mentions Frank and a few other things. So I'm going to dive into that right now. This is from author Micah S. Harris. 
Dear Derek, thanks for the delight that is Monster Kid Radio. Recently celebrated a friend's birthday by watching over the weekend The Flesh Eaters, Wild Wild Planet, and Navy versus The Night Monsters. The last two-thirds of that triple feature came directly from your choices of topic for a podcast. My pal and I found Wild Wild Planet to be extraordinary. Mad Men guys in space. My jaw dropped in that scene where the alien women were whipping our heroes, and then when delayed backup guys are snapped at for taking their time to show up, the reply was... That was just a bunch of girls. We thought you could handle it. <laughs> you cannot write lines like that anymore. I became interested in Night Monsters because of the monster plant angle. I've written a story published in Black Coat Press's Tales of the Shadow Men in which alien plants who feed off of animal fear are co-inhabiting with some Native Americans on their reservation in the early 1970s. As is the Shadowmen way, there are unofficial crossovers, and mine included a monster fan's rogues gallery of characters who have been featured in movies dealing either with monster plant life or generating fear. This included Vincent Price's character from The Tingler, Karloff's from The Fear Chamber, the scientist behind Godzilla's foe, Biollante, and Donald Pleasance's mad professor from The Freak Maker, among others. A piece of the meteorite that created the bizarre vegetable life in Lovecraft's color out of space was an important plot element. And in the same story, the fear generating from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house drew a Marvel Comics by Petal Blantman to it. I wish I'd known then about how the plant monsters and Navy versus the night monsters seem to burn their victims. I would have tied that in. Okay, I'm going I'm to interrupt here right now. Um, <laughs> the Shadow Men is a really cool series of books. They're anthologies, handful of short stories, very pulpy, sometimes using public domain characters, sometimes taking characters inspired by other non-public domain characters. And this story just sounds amazing to link all this stuff together. Man, I want to, I want to read this. All right. Back to the email. He continues, it's always interesting to hear a Frank Schildener interview. Frank and I are often on the same contents page of Tales of the Shadow Men. A couple things were mentioned on that episode that I'd like to address. First is Harvey Kurtzman and Mad Monster Party. Okay. More Mad Monster Party content. You know, you guys and gals loved Mad Monster Party. Anyway, he says his pulling in Yiddish words in both the original Mad Magazine into Mad Monster Party was duly noted by a listener. That would have been listener Alan Trump. Then the sexy strip fight scene came up. I don't know if anybody's mentioned this or not, but Kurtzman is also the co-creator of Playboy Magazine's Little Annie Fanny, in which her clothes could be counted on to disappear to some degree from its second installment on. Of course, when Frank Frazetta is drawing you as a guest artist on a James Bond spoof or beach movie parody, where all the winners when Annie loses. <laughs> By the way, Kurtzman has been a hero of mine since I was 12 and read Les Daniels' early 70s book on the history of comics. Years later, I got the nerve to approach Mr. Kurtzman on a con floor. My encounter turned out pretty cringeworthy. Kurtzman was just kidding, I hope, but I did not have the rapier wit to cross blades with him, let's say. Also, you mentioned the rape scene in Frankenstein must be destroyed. Oh, the, hmm. And how ugly realism intruded into the fantasy horror with it. I'm right there with you. Intrusion is right. Since you were behind the Hammer Films podcast, you know the story behind that scene, how the scene was forced in and no one saw it coming. I think it was the big man at Hammer who announced they were going to have a rape to spice things up in an era when movies like Rosemary's Baby and The Straw Dogs and Bonnie and Clyde and The Exorcist were becoming the new big thing. Hammer's Victorian period pieces were looking mighty quaint, and this was the quote-unquote remedy? Well, both Peter Cushing and Terrence Fisher were Christians and didn't want to do it. They were upset about being forced to, and it was totally out of Frankenstein's character. It wasn't his way of exerting control, as we had already seen, and since Justine, back in Curse of Frankenstein, he had become something of a celibate in his dedicated pursuit of quote-unquote higher or quote-unquote lower 
matters. I suspect if there could have been such a thing as a director's cut on home video before Fisher died, the scene would have been removed, an actual director's cut, instead of adding additional material. All right, I'm going to interject here, and man, oh man, I agree with you so much, and I know a lot of people do as well. Yeah, I am one of the people behind the 1951 Downplace podcast, which, again, Scott and I are talking about bringing it back, and this came up there too. It's just sticks out like a sore thumb. It intrudes into this film, and just it doesn't belong, man. Oh, anyway, back to the email. Also, freaks came up in your conversation with Frank. My new pulp novel, Ravenwood, The Stepson of Mystery, has a guest appearance by freaks little person protagonist, Harry Earls. In said scene, he is co-starring with none other than Anne Darrow under her quote-unquote real name before it was anglicized for marquee value. This adventure takes place a few months before she heads out to Skull Island, although at the climax she does end up on what will become the King Kong set, while it's still the Jerusalem set from DeMille's King of Kings, wall and all. Also, the character Earls plays in Freaks, as originally presented in the story Spurs, appeared in my novella Slouching Toward Gamelodinum, a sequel to Arthur Macon's The Great God Pan. He's out for some nasty revenge for the desecration of the corpse of his little lady love. But then a lot of people are after evil Pan's Pune Helen Vaughn in that story. Freaks is a tough movie to watch, man. It <laughs> really is, but it's it's affecting and it's really well done, but it, it can be a little difficult. Also, Micah mentions a few of the other books that he's been involved with, and uh, I, I kind of want to sit on that for now because, well, he's seeking a publisher for one of them, and, and I don't want to ruin anything by talking about it too much, but fingers crossed, man, because I would love to see that happen and, and read this book that you mentioned as well. It does have something to do with Freaks. I did look up Micah on Amazon. There's only one book listed in his Amazon author page, but if you actually just do a search for his name, Micah S. Harris, you're going to find a whole slew of books. The Tales of the Shadow Man anthology said he's appeared in a number of other things. So listeners, go check it out and let them know that you heard about him here on Monster Kid Radio. Micah, thank you for writing in. I really appreciate it. And yeah, I mean... The more the merrier. So thank you for being part of the Monster Kid Radio audience. I love having Frank on the show, too. He's a blast to talk about monster movies with, and I know he's got a mad love for Frankenstein. I mean, we all do. It's Frankenstein month here on Monster Kid Radio. It was a complete accident. I know I said I wasn't going to do theme months or at least plan them out, but, you know, all these Frankenstein movies in February? It's, it's Frankenstein February, and we've got more Frankenstein talk coming up with Frankenstein 1970 with author Dwight Kemper. We do talk about Mad Monster Party a little bit as well, and a few other things come up. Spoiler warning, they're coming. We're going to get to all of that right after this. This. There's never been a pattern to these Pacific vanishings. They seem to happen at random. Communication stopped. The crew's too busy to handle it to, to report. Handle what? Something that can catch up with the plane and snatch the people out of it. The Navy versus the Night Monsters. Starring Mamie Van Doren, who triggered earthly emotions in the midst of unearthly events. Anthony Isley, fighting fiendish, crawling things. From Antarctica, frozen for a million years. To a small naval outpost in the Pacific comes a cargo of deviltry, devastation, death. 
attacking bodies, destroying minds. Killing terror in a desperate, endless fight against a nameless horror. Those things are multiplying. There's no telling how fast. I wouldn't be surprised. We've got up to be hundreds, maybe even thousands. The whole island will be covered with them. transplant his brain. If I don't, it'll die through lack of oxygen. In his nightmare mind, one more horror, one last horrendous act. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Frankenstein must be destroyed. Peter Cushing, Veronica Carlson. Frankenstein must be destroyed. This picture has been rated M, suggested for mature audiences. Hey, comic book fans, I'm Joe Stuber, producer and host of Comic Book Central, where each and every week I welcome a legendary talent to the Comic Book Central lair to talk about bringing comic books to life. Greetings, true believers. This is Stan Lee. When do you think the Academy is going to wise up and create a special Oscar category for best cameo? I don't know. They're just asleep on their feet. Maybe your show, maybe this interview will be the turning point. Hi, this is Jamie Alexander, the Asgardian warrior Sif from Thor. I went to Marvel. They said, hey, sit down. We want to talk to you about this part. So what happened was I had a knife in my purse. I set the purse on the chair and it fell off and the knife fell out. And then they were like, oh, God, you really are Lady Sif. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the one, the only, William Shatner. There's all these rumors out there that you're going to be in the next Star Trek film. Well, I'd like to be in it. You know, I don't want to be a gratuitous character. Like scrubbing me, the uh, windows on the Enterprise or something? There's a guy on the Chris wing. Chris Pine! There's a guy on the wing. Chris Pine says there's a guy on the wing. Catch the very latest episodes at the website, comicbookcentral.net. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, like it on Facebook, follow it on Twitter, and be sure to join me each and every week for Comic Book Central. This is John Reese davis Hi, everyone. This is Summer Glau. Hi, this is Trisha Helfer, number six from Battlestar Galactica. Hey, this is Dean Kane, Superman from Lois and Clark, and you're listening to Comic Book Central. Where comic books come to life. Excelsior. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night 
Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. track of how long it's been since i've had this week's guest on monster kid radio but i'm happy to have him back he is the man behind the incredible novels bill lugosi in the house of doom who framed boris uh boris frankenstein <laughs> who framed boris karloff don't get the titles wrong i know right right the vampires to mystery and then most recently you can find his essay just a word of friendly warning in the book monster kidding by our friend michael Leggy. white kemper welcome to the show welcome back to the show Thank you. It's about time, too. I know, right? It's been too long. How's it been going? How's 2017 treating you? It's been okay. Actually, at the gym, it's been marvelous. But, uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I'm still I'm still reeling over the election. <laughs> Uh-oh. Okay. No, no politics. No politics. <laughs> well, I mean, I actually, I actually am a elections inspector, so I actually had to run elections in my district for the Oh, okay, okay. There we go. So I had to, so I had to get up at the horrible hour of five a.m. so that I could open the polls at six thirty, I believe, and then all day long it, it was a madhouse until nine o'clock at night when I was able to close the polls. Thank goodness. Sounds like a long day. <laughs> yes, it was. It was kind of interesting, but what are you going to do? But anyway, other things that have been happening, not in twenty seventeen. Oh, actually, in 2017, yes, I'm going to have a dealer table at uh, Monster Bash this June, where I will be selling copies of of the books whose titles you destroyed. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) As well as as well as the uh, eight CD audio box set produced by Circle of Spheres Productions in England of my book, uh, The Vampires to Mysteries. So. Come out and see me and, and buy my stuff and help pay for the table that I bought, not to mention the horribly expensive room I had to get because all the other hotels were uh, booked solid. <laughs> so. Yeah, the hotel there fills up real quick. So <laughs> All the hotels book up real quick. I mean, they had to um, – I'm actually in a place called Cranberry, which they assure me is only a mile and a half from the convention center. So let's, let's hope that they are true. In their word to that, but it's my vacation anyway, so I shall be spending it amongst monster kids everywhere and trying to say, buy my book, buy it, please. (laughs) (laughs) I can think of a better way to spend vacation than to, you know, spend it with your fellow monster kids and, you know, a couple of people who've been in these monster movies. I guess Gary Conway's going to be there since we're kind of in a Frankenstein mode right now here on Monster Kid Radio. The man from Teenage Frankenstein's going to be there, which is great. Oh, I haven't even looked at who's going. I, I was just busy trying to figure out uh, what to bring myself and to bring myself because I need to be there. So Yeah, yeah don't forget that. <laughs> I know. be very easy. It would be hard to lose me in a crowd with me. But, you know, well. <laughs> and will you have the CD there to sell as well, the CDs? Yes. Yes, I will. Excellent. I, I, have, I have many to unload, and I'm sure that the folks in England at Circular Spears Productions are just champing at the bit to send me another box of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as soon as I can get rid of these and 
And I will even sign them for the people who buy them and things like that. And I have to say so that um, they are very well produced. Unlike a lot of audiobooks where a man does the whole thing, the narration and everything, uh, we actually have uh, two very talented people, a man and a woman, because they asked me how I wanted them to do it. And I said, I would rather not have it where somebody is putting on a falsetto voice every time there's a female character in the thing, because there are a lot of female characters in this book. So I, I, I just couldn't see some poor fellow going, oh, oh, hey. <laughs> especially trying to do vampire. <laughs> that would have just not been. Instead, we have uh, uh, the lovely and talented Helen Sterling, who I sent audio samplings of all the real people that are in my fictional story. And uh, she does a dead-on uh, Vampira, as well as a very, very good, well, she's not Mrs. Lugosi in this one. Uh, I had to change the name for certain reasons to Armand Tesla instead of Bella Lugosi. So. But uh, the uh, she does all the voices dead on perfect. And Sam Burns, who does the narration and all the male voices, does a really good, ba uh, well, not Bella Lugosi, but a really good arm on Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, so uh, do do get the audio CD. If you are going to Monster Bash, look for me. I have no idea where I'll be, but look for me. I'll be the fellow who will be grabbing people as they walk by going, buy my book. There you go. There you go. It is highly recommended. It's got the Monster Kid Radio seal of approval, uh, the Vampire's Tomb Mystery. It's a great collection of CDs. It's eight discs, isn't it? So it's unabridged. Yes, it's eight discs. It's unabridged. Uh, each CD has an illustration that I have done with my own two hands. <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to paraphrase uh, Dr. Frankenstein, with my own two hands, I forged these illustrations. And... Uh, <laughs> And they're nice. on each of these CDs, and um, they're they're very meticulous over there at Circle of Spirits Productions, and I was involved with every last little phase of it, and they were appreciative of the fact that I do actually have some audio experience of my own. Uh, I've actually produced a couple of radio dramas in my time, so I was actually able to suggest certain things, and... I say, you know, the ambience in this one take sounds entirely different than the ambience in the very next line. So did you, like, move your head or something? <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> um, you know, they, they took my uh, notes very seriously, and they came up with this beautiful, beautiful recording, which people can listen to for hours while they're stuck in traffic or... Trying, pretending to be listening to somebody else's conversation and actually listening to my audio. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, what did you say? I was listening to your book. What was that? Ah, yes. Circleofspears.com. Go check it out. There is a sample available on that website. There's also a sample on YouTube where you can go check that out and listen to it. Try before you buy, but you really, right. you can buy it sight unseen or, or sound unheard because it, Again, Monster Kid Radio approves. Dwight's a great storyteller. I, I wish there were more novels from you, man. Well, my most recent writing experience was I wrote the screenplay to the sequel to Tales of Dracula, which I thought was really, really good. And unfortunately, the 
uh, things ha- prevented the thing from actually seeing production. But I managed to tie up all the loose ends. And it was an interesting writing experience because I was told, we have these sets. We know we're going to build these sets. We need only this many people. And we, we need to have only these locations. And so from all of that, I extrapolated the plot. And I uh, discussed with Joe DeMaro different plot things. And he had some ideas. And I had some ideas. And I culminated them into uh, three drafts. The first draft was extremely funny because I have a weird sense of humor. <laughs> and then uh, Joe looked at that and said, well, this is great, but it's, it's a little too funny, you know. Could you cut out this and this and that? And so I did. And then, and then there was a, a couple of other drafts where uh, you wanted to do some post-credit scenes, so I had to write those in. It was, it was actually, it was going it It's a really good script. If I can get hold of him again, I was thinking that we should probably do something like getting it turned into a book. But I haven't spoken to him lately, so we'll have to see sort of disappeared. Perhaps he is listening to this radio show and he'll give me a call at some point. Uh, I'll say, Joe, if you're listening. (laughs) Joe, if you're listening, call me. I was really rather proud of that. And, um, but mostly what I have been doing is either art or cleaning my house. (laughs) So, which, which is a big project in and of itself. And, but you know, what are you going to do? You you live in a haunted house. You got things accumulate. You got to you know move the body somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, okay then. I'd be interested in seeing the art. um, But you know, if you ever get around to writing that book, like I said, I would definitely love to read it. So, Joe, again, if you are listening, get a hold of Dwight, please, for all of us monster kids, please. The one, the only, King of Monsters brings you the Demon of the Atomic Age. Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, 1970, carrying on the hideous experiments of his infamous ancestor. In this stone sarcophagus, deep in the bulls of the earth, he buried his creature his creation. Frankenstein, 1970. In the hell pit of his centuries old castle, he perverts the terrifying wonders of nuclear science. Let's get you some eyes. To unleash a horror beyond all imagination. What kind of dealings do you have with the director of the morgue? Are you interested in corpses? Even the cyclotron concealed in his subterranean vaults cannot complete his foul creation, for which he must have throbbing vital organs transplanted from living beings. Two people are missing, and I want to know why they haven't come back. Mr. O, I imagine, would have us suspect foul play. Chris Karloff as Frankenstein, 1970. Karloff, Karloff, Karloff. 
you know, let's, let's change gears here. It's Frankenstein month here on Monster Kid Radio, so we got to talk about Frankenstein, one of the icons, one of the uh, keystones of what we do here on Monster Kid Radio. It's a Monster Kid Radio dumb, really. I mean, this is one of the, the, the things that we latch on to, the Frankenstein story, whether it's Universal, whether it's Hammer, whether it's Teenage Frankenstein, like I was talking about earlier, or Frankenstein 1970, which was not released in 1970. It was released in 1950. Eight, I believe, yes. In fact, that is one of the two uh, major connections that I have with Frankenstein 1970, is that it was released the same year that I was. Uh, <laughs> I was born in 1958, so we, we we're we the exact same age, as it were. <laughs> so, so, yes. The other thing that I am connected to with Frankenstein 1970 is that, to my recollection... This is the very, very first horror film that I ever saw. And I must have been about four or five years old when I saw it. And it left a big impression upon me. So I'm looking forward to delving into that. Definitely. When I mentioned this on Facebook a little bit ago, a couple of people commented on the film, whether they liked it, whether they liked the beginning better than the rest of the film. But when Dwight told me that this was the first monster movie, horror movie that he remembered seeing, it's like, okay, I got to get Dwight on the show. It's been too long. Anyway, we got to talk about this. I really like this movie. I know it's kind of underrated in some places and some circles, but I mean, it's Karloff. How can you go wrong with King Karloff, you know? Well, not only that, but this is really the only other film where Boris Karloff is allowed to be just down, out, and out, gloriously evil. Uh, the only other film where he gets to be like that is The uh, Mask of Fu Manchu, where he apparently decided that this is a big send-up and I'm going to be as over-the-top as possible because I think the script is actually kind of funny, so he just went all out as Fu Manchu. And in here, he Fu Manchu's up the scenery in, <laughs> in, yeah. in, a, in a big way. I mean, he quite literally maniacally laughs through, you know, this whole thing. I'll be looking for you later. <laughs> you know, it's a wonderful thing. He's just so gloriously nasty and he's enjoying every minute of it. I should have to tell you the story of the curious commandant. And of course, as he's telling the story, he's playing a pipe organ, and it's just, you know, it's just marvelous. He certainly played the villain before in things like The Black Cat, but you're right. This is, it, it, it doesn't go caricature, but it's still so gloriously, oh, so good. Well, the thing of it is, is that usually Boris Karloff's villains have a trace of decency about where they're sympathetic at some point. Frankenstein's monster is basically a big kid who doesn't mean to kill, but then gets ticked off when people try to kill him, which, you know, most people would understand. Understandable. <laughs> right. Uh, the mummy, he's, he's this hopeless romantic who's in love with this vestal virgin he's trying to bring back from the dead, and he doesn't care who he kills to do it. And all of these different characters, as evil as they are, have a trace of something in them where where the audience is kind of rooting for him to succeed. In The Raven, where he's Venkman, he's, I mean, yeah, he's a killer who uh, puts a torch in a guy's face when he's screaming for the police, but, you know, they say, when a man is, looks ugly, he does ugly things. And then he's made really ugly by Bela Lugosi. 
But in this movie, in Frankenstein 1970, there is not a single redeeming feature to this character. He is egotistical. He is vicious. He, he just wants to do one thing and one thing only, and that's bring that monster back to life. I won't spoil it here, but when I, when I tell people why he wants to bring it back to life, I'll say spoilers so that people won't get <laughs> upset with us. But it is probably the most egotistical, self-serving reason that any mad scientist has ever had for reviving a seven-foot-tall monster. And when we get into the spoiler part, I'll even elaborate on why it is such a brilliant conclusion uh, to Boris Karloff's Frankenstein monster career. But yeah, he's he's just delightfully villainous through this whole thing. I love it. I love this movie. Its production history is interesting. Apparently, it was part of a three-picture deal that Karloff had with Howard W. Koch, which only this and another film were done, and he didn't get paid for the third one. So that was the end of that collaboration right you know the other film was the first film because this was the second one right yeah i don't remember i don't know what the other one was i'm going to come into the conversation here real well it's my conversation i was part of the conversation so am i really interrupt you know what this is derek recording wednesday the day before this episode is going out the conversation that you're hearing right now with me and dwight that happened last weekend and since then i've learned or at least i, I think i've learned that the second movie that we're referring to here is actually Voodoo Island, the movie that has come up a couple of times in feedback and conversations here on Monster Kid Radio. No, I still haven't seen the movie. I, I have those lobby cards, and I really want to see the film. I just haven't gotten around to doing it yet, but I will, and because I can't get enough movie trailer audio, I'm going to go ahead and play the trailer for Voodoo Island right now, and then we're going to get back into the conversation with Dwight. So sit tight. Here we go. Nobody goes to that island. Not in their right mind. Why do you say that? I don't say it. It's what the natives say. What they have been saying for the last 50 years. They say nobody ever goes there and comes back. The voodoo curse strikes at all who are drawn there by the lure of gold. Look out! Maybe they're not ashes from a fire. Maybe they're ashes of a different kind. Black magic cast its darkest spell, turning it into a jungle of overpowering evil. supposed to be a three-picture deal and the third picture never materialized and i think Karloff was contractually supposed to get some money even if it wasn't produced but he didn't and right. one thing you don't do with boris Karloff is not pay him <laughs> <laughs> yeah he will forgive almost anything else but not getting paid i guess that's why i associate myself with him so much <laughs> <laughs> uh oh <laughs> well you haven't agreed to pay me for anything so you're 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 in the clear <laughs> oh, okay good good all right good <laughs> yeah. 
And I believe that the uh, set for Frankenstein's Castle is actually a standing set from a film called Too Much Too Soon. Right. Which was the Diana Barrymore biopic. It was sort of in a way like I was doing when I was uh, writing the screenplay for uh, Tales of Dracula, Dracula Meets the Wolfman, is that uh, I was told that we have these certain sets and we have these things. And apparently the writers of this film uh, did exactly the same thing. We have these sets, so write it around this stuff. So, right. Uh, so it's a, it's a, a, tr- a grand tradition of uh, quick and cheap filmmaking. <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so it has an interesting production history. It also has very good cinematography, and it's also a widescreen film, which you wouldn't expect for some something that's uh, considered a, basically a B-grade film. It does have a, a grander feel to it than it probably has any right to, and I think part of it has to do with the set. You mentioned the cinematography. Uh, the cinematography was by a guy by the name of Carl Guthrie, who actually also shot too much too soon so he was already familiar with the set and knew where to put the lights and everything so another budget saving device or mechanism in place but he knew what he was doing it looks great oh yeah the opening shots are truly awe-inspiring really where this uh, girl is being chased by what we assume to be the frankenstein monster through forest or a swamp or whatever it is and now, from what I understand from the uh, audio commentary of the DVD, the original intent was that this opening scene was going to have credits over it, which is why the monster pauses in his chase for so oh, long, okay. because the title was supposed to appear at that point, and the other credits were supposed to happen, but without those, the monster's just pausing for no reason, <laughs> but... It's still kind of um, effective, and the background sound effects for the night scenes with the, you know, uh, yeah. also very effective. In fact, there's a lot of um, in the sound design of this film which fascinated me as a child, particularly the sound effect of uh, Doctor Frankenstein's laboratory, which sounds like it's basically being done by a, an organ. And it goes bloop, 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 bloop. That just drew my attention when I was a child and I first saw this film. And when I finally got the VHS tape of it before the DVD was released, it brought back so many memories when I heard that sound effect. <laughs> and other sound effects. Apparently, uh, they had a, a grinding noise. Boris Karloff has this trash compactor that he pours organs that he can't use into and apparently originally they had a sound of flesh being and bone being crunched up in the thing and the uh, sensors at the time thought it was too gruesome so they replaced it with the sound of a flushing toilet which not exactly the same mood <laughs> or tone but no, you but know it, it would, it would sort of make sense i mean it's flushing away the stuff so i mean it still works it's just the, and it's not so obviously a toilet i mean until somebody pointed it out to me that's that's what it was i just assumed it was you know just the mechanism of the of the thing working but now that you know it's a t- you can't get away from it yeah. yeah it's like when you're listening to the war of the worlds broadcast uh by orson wells they used the toilet for the uh artillery they were flushing toilets for the artillery when you 
they had the sound equipment in the radio office building bathroom and flushing toilets. <laughs> so, <laughs> so toilets are a very useful thing. Uh, I, I suppose so. <laughs> for, for sound effects yeah. people of all of all ages and in all times. Of course, now we can't watch that without actually hearing the toilet seat. So you just ruined War of the Worlds, uh, Frankenstein 19s. No, I'm just. <laughs> it's my job. It's my hey, job. There you go. To ruin experiences for other people. Uh, no, no. You, you do what you have to do. And, I, and I, I don't know. I'm assuming people who are really into these movies don't feel like things like that ruin the film, but just enhance it because now that you know how they did it, you can appreciate even more. And maybe that's just me, but it's always been that way. I mean, uh, people have to use what's available to Mm -hmm. get the production done. And, uh, in Orson Welles's case, uh, taking a jar of pickles and putting it down in a toilet with a microphone and then slowly opening the jar sounds like a Martian capsule being opened from the inside. And if that works, it works. I, I, uh, when I, like I said, when I produced a couple of, uh, radio plays that I wrote, I had somebody in clanking armor. And what I did for that was I just had a bunch of pots and pans in my hands and I would just shake them up and make them sound like they're, you know, one time I tried to do a dead body fall and literally fell and the noise wasn't elaborate enough and then i discovered on my third attempt that when my feet hit the floor it made the thud that i wanted so i didn't have to drop down at all i just lay down on the floor and just had my uh, heavy shoes hit the floor <laughs> and, it, <laughs> and it created the sound effect perfectly the one that i wanted so whatever you gotta do you mentioned the lab and that that organ like sound effect i mean the, the character plays an organ elsewhere so i mean it makes sense the lab set the lab scenes they just sound great. They, they have a nice ambiance that you get beyond just, ooh, look at the lab. You know, it just sounds good. Uh, and the entire movie sounds good, I think. The beginning sequence mm. you know, that was supposed to have titles over it also sounds great. I would say that getting back to uh, the original Frankenstein, they also dealt with sound design by putting a microphone in the coffin when they're putting the clods of earth in, mm-hmm. you know, burying the coffin at the beginning before Frankenstein comes along and digs it up. And as it's been pointed out that the monster's heavy footsteps that you hear just before he comes into the laboratory, you know, walking in backwards, that sort of chilled people. So you can do a lot with sound, especially back then when people were used to audio dramas and uh, hearing sound, but not necessarily seeing visual that goes with it. It's a lost art, man. Speaking of Frankenstein, the original. I, yes. I don't know where else to inject this. Uh, now, the whole reason I'm seeing Frankenstein 1970 at the age of five is because my mother was the original monster kid. When she was a little girl in 1931, she saw the original uncut Frankenstein, which she saw the girl drowning and all of the fritz with the torch and the monster's face and everything. Th- those were all there. Plus one other little chestnut of information that I really have not read in any film historian's book on the subject that I will now share with you and your loyal listeners. This is fascinating. When you told me this yesterday, when we were testing our connection, it's like, wow, that's, we got to use this on the show. So please. (laughs) All right. My mother told me that in the original print of Frankenstein, 
Now, most people think of the monster as green, but they think it's because the makeup was slightly green tinted so that when they shot it in black and white, he would look corpse white. And that may be true. But the reason that the general public felt that the monster was green was because the original print of Frankenstein, when the monster comes through the door backward, was actually tinted green. The color of horror, as it was said back then. So you're seeing a black and white film, you're hearing these footsteps, they turn out the lights, they cut to the door, and as it opens, suddenly we go from black and white to green. And then the monster turns around, and then you have that jump cut close-up of the monster, and he's green. And that's the kind of showmanship that Universal did back then. And it's not in any of the prints. Nobody seems to even know that they did it, but they it did actually do that. It, uh, my mom saw the movie in New York, and, I, and that was it was actually tinted green. So that's why the legend of the monster being green originated, even though people don't remember it. It's because they actually tinted that scene green. They would do that with a lot of the silent films before sound came along. They would tint something. Fan of the Opera has got lots of tinting in it in different sequences. I never heard anything about this film having that treatment, but fascinating. And if anybody has any leads on maybe some stills of it like that or anything, I would love to see that. Just sounds fascinating. And my mother being an avid monster kid was determined that I was going to follow suit. So I have no idea what time of night this movie thing was on, but suddenly I am being roused from sleep and putting put in front of a television set with two English muffins with melted cheese on them because she gave me a snack. Okay. <laughs> and then and then comes on the horror show. Now there was no horror host for this thing. And what they had instead were clips of different films that, I, of course, I didn't know what these were back then. But now I know that, you know, they had a clip from, oh, like the C-57D from Forbidden Planet coming in for a landing, you know, to Altair 4. And uh, they had a, a the shot from uh, the crawling eye where the crawling eye is coming right at the camera, that sort of thing. And it. It ended with a clip from Frankenstein 1970, where the monster is wading out into the middle of the water to, to get the screaming girl. And this was my first experience of horror films, and I was hooked ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and this is also why I now associate Frankenstein 1970 with grilled cheese and English muffins. <laughs> so... <laughs> And well, in a way, the uh, the bandages when they after the atomic steam gets the monster at the end, kind of looks like the nooks and crannies in a, a English muffin. So it kind of fit the whole milieu of the experience. Yeah, I mean, I I can see how that could be a formative experience. But for listeners who aren't overly familiar with the film, or or if you don't mind being spoiled, this, from what I understand. It may have been the first, it, one of the first, if not the first, Frankenstein film to be shot here in the States after Hammer had a run with him. Because Hammer was yeah. doing him for a while, and then 
here's another Frankenstein film for here in the States. Uh, Howard Koch is the director, no relation besides he pronounces his last name wrong. Um, <laughs> and, and you've got Karloff, like you said, Fu Man chewing the scenery, and that's a great way to put it. But you've got so much more going on here. It opens with this great title sequence with this, this Frankenstein monster thing, which is it a Frankenstein monster? It actually also has a little bit of a werewolf vibe to it. Yeah, he also has he has these his long elaborate claws. Yeah, he's he's got the built up shoes and the claws, and it sort of holds them in a claw like way. So he's kind of a a different sort of combination monster and werewolf sort of combination, played by an actor named Hans Himmler, which. <laughs> <laughs> so we we possibly have a a a monster werewolf Nazi zombie thing, <laughs> and the whole thing turns out to be a uh, a film is being made in uh, in Frankenstein's castle. There's a film crew there, and in order to get permission from Baron uh, Victor von Frankenstein, played by Boris Karloff, they had to pay him with an atomic engine for you know a reactor for whatever purpose he they how how a small time film company was able to get a nuclear reactor and have it brought to Frankenstein's castle I do not know but boy howdy he's got one of the best nuclear reactors that film money can buy <laughs> And we, we later learn, because they actually have the Baron himself talking about the history of his family and the monster, and we are told in a very elaborate, almost Shakespearean way of describing my family tree. Oh, yes, but first my ancestor had to learn how flesh was made, and then how you could knit living human organs together to create his creature, his man. But he turned out to be a monster. You know, and he's just really going over the top of this. I just love it. Oh, I love it for, I mean, Karloff's performance, Karloff's portrayal. But it's also, correct me if I'm wrong, isn't it just one long continuous shot while he's doing this entire monologue? Yeah, it is one continuous shot. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't the first take, too, because uh, he did something very similar to that in Targets, where he, where he told the story of the, the the man from Sumatra or something like that. It was about the fellow who thought he was escaping death, and then when he was trying to escape death, he actually was meeting up with death in the place that he was escaping to. And he told that whole thing in one continuous long take as the camera very slowly moves in for a close-up and he's and he's doing the same thing here too and very passionately he's talking about how the original dr frankenstein uh decided to correct his mistake by uh basically taking his monster apart and burying the body without vital organs in the crypt where it would remain for all time well for all time was until 1970 because boris karloff's character uh, is resurrecting the monster and he's using the atomic pile there to revitalize him and apparently he's going to the morgues and everything in town to pick up different pieces and pieces parts to put back into the monster and and you get to see uh him sort of 
working with this uh, bandaged up body with a bare skull. And somehow it works. It's it, it's silly <laughs> as hell if you really stop to think about it. Why does the rest of the body have flesh on it, but the head has no flesh? And apparently he just wants to make the head from scratch. He does all sorts of little things, like he has this little hammer, and he taps the skull with it, apparently in the hopes of, I don't know, making the brain work better? I have no idea. I, I wondered about that scene. It seems kind of, okay. You know, it's like, Okay, well, you know, it does sort of remind me of Bang Bang Maxwell Silver Hammer came down upon his head. <laughs> <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, he's uh, he, he's got, had this idea to that's that now he needs living organs to put into the monster. He just can't use the dead ones anymore. So he's actually going to start harvesting parts from the uh, cast and crew of the movie that's there. And at one point, he has some eyes in a glass jar, which, here's a tip, if you have eyes, don't put them in a glass jar. Uh, because he takes them out of the refrigerator, and yes, they're in a refrigerator. And as the door closes, it sort of hits his arm and knocks somehow knocks the bottle of eyes onto the floor and breaks and... So now he has a monster that's blind and also has the brain of his manservant Shooter, who is played by Norbert Schiller. And Shooter becomes the, the brain donor because he sort of finds the secret passage by accident to the laboratory. And you would think that, okay, there's a secret passage in this crypt going down to gosh knows where, why don't I go down and see what it's about? <laughs> and then he finds his, that his uh, master is bringing the monster back to life. And then, of course, Boris looks at him and goes, Oh, Shooter, why did it have to be you? And then he <laughs> hypnotizes him with, with these scissors that he puts in the light and say, You know, No, please, Baron, I will not tell. Oh, I know, you won't tell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> So Shooter's brain is now in the monster's bar. Now, had they had an earlier scene, because they had plenty of opportunity, because Shooter sort of, he's given a scarf by the girl who's the lead actress in the picture, and the Baron's kind of jealous of that. Oh, I see that she's taken to you, hasn't she, Shooter? Yeah. Well, pardon me, but I need you to go get me these drinks. Yeah. At one point, he's the servant of the castle. You would think that at some point, Oh, Shooter knows this castle so well, he could go through it blindfolded. Which would have explained everything else, because he keeps sending the monster out to kill people to get another pair of eyes for him. And he keeps killing the wrong people because he can't see who he's killing. And, <laughs> you know... And even at one point, he, this girl is screaming. He's going after a guy. He's supposed to go after a guy, and this woman looks at him, opens the door to her bedroom, and there's the monster there, and screams her head off. You would think at some point, well, maybe that's not the person I'm supposed to kill. But she, and, and the thing is, she faints dead away, and somehow the monster knows that she's at his feet and picks her up. <laughs> so he's blind, but not that blind. Um, <laughs> the way the film goes they're they're wondering where all the people are going because cast people are keep disappearing and and the the local police come in to investigate and of course naturally nobody suspects the 
Baron with the scar on his face that he's doing anything wrong. Who happens to be named Frankenstein. Who happens no, to be named no, Frankenstein, no. who happens to have an atomic motor for some reason, for no apparent reason whatsoever. But eventually, he does manage to get his monster shooter creation a pair of eyes. And in a kind of an interesting scene, they take the guy who is supposed to be the new eye donor, Mm-hmm. And they freeze frame the shot and then they mat the monster's bandaged face over it so you can see his eyes through the holes. I thought that was kind of clever. It, it is, uh, without dragging the scene down with another, let's pull out the eyes and do something with them in the lab or whatever. It's just a simple transition fade, basically, from one shot to the other. Uh, Gottfried is the man who donates the eyes there and he's... I guess Frankenstein's not really butler, not really assistant, but confidant who kind of knows what's going on. Right. And at one point he's sort of asking too many questions. And that's when the Baron uh, tells him the story about the overly curious commandant. (laughs) I think it wound up with the commandant lost his tongue. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And somehow he had lost his tongue. Yeah, and while he's telling the story, the organ's playing. So there are all these wonderful little touches and pastiches and everything. Well, as often is the case, now throughout this whole thing, we see bits of Frankenstein uh, working on this clay model of his face. And he's admiring a picture of himself, which apparently is supposed to be have been taken during World War II before he was put into a concentration camp and tortured. And yet, if you look at the photograph, it's actually him now. And why they just didn't simply take a publicity picture from the 1940s and use that, I have no freaking idea. Had to have been a right thing. So it would have made a lot more sense, right? Right. So it would have been something like, I've always looked old. <laughs> Even when I was a baby, I looked old. What do you? And we would have believed it too if he had said that, because of just how this movie is. And just to show you what an egotistical person Frankenstein is, as he's looking at the picture and he's looking at the clay bust that he's done of it, he sort of chucks it under the chins. When oh, you handsome devil, you! <laughs> <laughs> and we're wondering why he's doing all of this. And here come the spoilers, folks. Shooter monster has eyes now, and Dr. Frankenstein has the monster do the thing where he gets the pretty girl, and the girl uh, is in the monster's arms. And I think I should mention, the monster's been bandaged up through this whole movie. He he's basically looks like a mummy with a big head with a square. They actually did a really kind of clever thing. They, get, they gave the monster's bandaged head a flat top to it, so it sort of is reminiscent of Frankenstein, uh, 1931, <laughs> in a way. So, so the Boris is, is saying, shoot her, bring her down here, shoot her. And the girl's going, shoot her, no, shoot her, take me upstairs. And so the monster's going up, no, shoot her, bring her down here. No, shoot her, upstairs, upstairs, down here, shoot her, down here. <laughs> well, apparently this just ticks the monster off because he just goes down, down into the laboratory and he attacks Dr. Frankenstein. And he goes, no, Shooter, don't! If you, if the atomic steam will destroy you! I, I forget exactly how the atomic steam thing happened, but I think he hits a lever or something like 
that. And so the monster is uh, destroyed in this atomic steam bath, as is Dr. Frankenstein. They have guys in uh, with uh, Geiger counters and protective suits come in to make sure the place is safe for people to go in. And, of course, naturally, as we all know from things like Three Mile Island, uh, when there's an atomic accident, you can go in about a half an hour after it happens. Yeah, it's about 30 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the whole crew is down there, and then they have a tape of uh, uh, Dr. Frankenstein. Throughout this whole thing, he's been like recording a little bits of what he's doing. They play the tape, and over the tape, you can hear uh, Boris Karloff saying why he did what he did, and, you know, I gave you eyes, ears, a brain. And, and you open it up, and this is the most clever thing I ever saw. You open up the uh, bandage mask of the monster, and the monster is Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff recreated himself as the monster. So you literally have, for the last time, not counting uh, Lizard's Legs and Owlet Wing and Route 66, but in a film, for the last time, Boris Karloff playing Frankenstein's monster and not having makeup. In fact, the monster has, if I'm recalling correctly, a really dashing mustache. Yeah, exactly. He, he even built the mustache in, yeah. He wanted to rebuild himself as the perfect version before he was tortured and disfigured as this new monster. And I think that the only reason that he didn't decide to put his own brain in this thing so he could perpetuate himself and be this seven-foot-tall perfect god in his mind is that he just couldn't figure out how in the heck to get to do the operation himself and take his own brain out and put it into the monster. Don't we see that kind of play itself out in Revenge of Frankenstein, the Hammer film, doesn't at the end, Cushing has his oh, yeah. brain he moved from assistant. one... He has an he assistant has, do it. And this, a, this Frankenstein doesn't have an assistant that can do it. So, right. so you see, sometimes being a loner is going <laughs> to come back and bite you in the butt in the end. If you have friends, don't chop them up for parts, okay? <laughs> That's right. When you consider this is just kind of a silly B-movie to do something that clever to not only finish up the movie, but basically... Uh, dovetail with the original 1931 film. That's pretty clever thinking there. That's great. That's great storytelling. It really is. You can look at it from a big kind of big picture way. You tie it into the 31 film. It's one of the last times he was involved in a Frankenstein project at all um, to kind of tie it, to wrap it all around. It's just, it's pretty interesting uh, filmmaking and storytelling. And, and, up until this point, you mentioned the scene with the eyes. That's such a great shot. There's a great suspenseful sequence with the blonde and the cinematographer down in the, in the the basement, and he's playing with the light and getting readings off the light and telling her to go back into the into the darkness so that she can emerge into the light. And the monster's right behind her the entire time. Oh yeah. And there's yeah, a couple yeah. of times where you see her back up, and and there's the monster just raising his arms. Is he going to grab her? Well, no, because you know she has to make it through the end of the movie, but right. it's very suspenseful and very well done. There's a lot in this movie to really enjoy. In fact, the uh, in that scene, when the cinematographer is alone and he's sort of looking at it through his eyepiece to get a picture of it. Oh, that's a he, great shot. And then he sort of realizes he's staring at the monster. That was just fantastic. Yeah, a cool little POV shot through the little uh, the light gauge, the lens there. It's 
really cool. There's a lot of things in this film to enjoy. I like the music quite a bit. Paul Dunlap was the composer, and he's done a number of movies that are, are Monster Kid radio material, Invisible Invaders, uh, How to Make a Monster that you know, have some more Frankenstein action in there. Uh, Black Zoo. I mean, just a number of incredible movies. But I want to talk about the guy who played Frankenstein's monster in this. It's a guy by the name of Mike Lane. Mm-hmm. This is not the only time he played Frankenstein's monster. Mm. Mike Lane played Frank and Stein on the 1970s Monster Squad TV show. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I haven't seen that in years. As a matter of fact, that's about the second time a Saturday morning TV show I thought that they were going to turn that into an actual movie because they did the Monster Squad movie. And I thought, oh, they're going to do that mm-hmm. again. Frankie and Wolfie and all of that. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I guess he played the monster in an episode of The Monkees as well. But I, I don't remember that. But I no, do have no, no, the Monster no. Squad on DVD. So. No, in The Monkees it was uh, Richard Keel. Oh, was it? Yes. Huh. Well, either way, we've got him as Frankie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we've got him as Frankenstein in The Monster Squad, which... Yeah, I have it on DVD. I watched it once. I haven't gone back to revisit the series in a while. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention, and I wouldn't hear the end of it from Joe Suber, uh, the man from Comic Book Central, if I didn't mention that Mike Lane also played Daddy Longlegs in a couple of episodes of the Batman TV series from the 60s. Joe, if you're listening, that's for you. Um, he's a great-looking monster. And you get to see what he looks like without makeup, too, because he also plays Hans Himmler, the butler. You know, and I wanted to ask you, because at one point, well, he wants to leave. He, he He's done. He wants to to bug out and the director pays him a little bit extra i could have swore he were, he calls him hitler at one point but it, it, it's himmler isn't it he doesn't yes, slip and call himmler. him hitler does he okay because i was listening to it it's like he did not just say no no okay actually i i'm remembering what you're saying i think he does accidentally say hitler I, at first i thought it was uh, supposed to be a uh kind of a dig yeah you know Himmler was also a Nazi, so, you know. It's, well, that's true. You know, that's true. So it's, it's possible. It may also be possible it was a typo in the script and nobody corrected it. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. This was a, a pretty accelerated production. Karloff was only there for just barely over a week, and then they shot the rest of it. Now, and frankly, many people blame the director for not reeling Karloff in, and I'm, I'm just glad he didn't. I don't think this would have been as much fun to watch if they had. I would agree with you. I think that it does have this sense of, yeah, people are getting killed and you're seeing eyeballs and he's massaging the heart a lot. But, you know, it does have this kind of sense of unreality fun to it. Yeah. Because he's just having – I can't imagine Karloff didn't have fun making this movie. No, he looks like he's having a ball. I mean, yeah. it's almost like he's doing a send-up and everybody else is just taking this dead serious and he's just having a blast just – chewing up scenery right and left and i wouldn't have it any other way yeah i think it works perfectly for what it is what did you think of the makeup the with karloff's disfigured face you mean the disfigurement that changes every now and then yeah <laughs> how did you think that worked for you? i thought it worked well i know why they do it that way as i understand it the makeup that they were using you can't have it in exactly the same place all the time or it starts to scar so in order to prevent that, each day they would move it slightly so that it wouldn't burn into the skin. So there was a very good technical reason why it doesn't always match up in each shot, because I'm assuming that they probably used the cotton collodion and you know older methods rather than the, the more modern foam rubber appliances. So, hmm. uh, so as I understand it, 
from those early makeup days, that's kind of why it was like that. It was to spare the actor any kind of actual disfigurement. I seem to recall I learned this from the makeup artist who worked in uh, Bride of the Monster, that that was one of the reasons why Tor Johnson's makeup didn't always match, because they had to move it so that it didn't always land in the same places. Hmm. But yeah, no, it's very effective. Yeah, I thought it looked pretty good for what it is, and and Karloff... I mean, works through the makeup. I mean, he never gets buried in it. He just kind of makes it part of the character. I believe at this point he was actually wearing a brace on his leg. And and that sort of twisted up appearance of him works well with the actual makeup and what was supposed to have happened to him during the war. So he does everything to its, to, to its advantage. There's actually a very interesting story about uh, Karloff on uh, the Red Skelton show where at this point he was working with half of a half of a lung. He was in a show with Red Skelton and Vincent Price. And originally he was supposed to be in a wheelchair because he was pretty much wheelchair bound at this point. And Billy Barty was supposed to be dressed up as Frankenstein's monster in miniature, which was kind of an interesting callback because Billy Barty was supposed to be the baby and bride of Frankenstein in the jar, but they never used that shot. So you only saw him from the back. And, the original run-through with a live audience, they weren't laughing. And Karloff asked Vincent Price, do you suppose it's because I'm in a wheelchair? And Vincent Price related this story that Boris Karloff decided to do, which I think was like a 20-minute skit without a wheelchair. Wow. Because he thought that that was keeping him from being funny. And it worked. And... He bore up the pain, he got his oxygen before the thing started, and he just went through the whole thing. That's the kind of uh, trooper he was uh, to get the best possible uh, performance in in a scene. It is probably one of the bravest things I ever heard an actor do. I mean, uh, you know, if you, if you stop to think about the intense pain that he must have been in uh, through, and yet still maintaining comic timing that's why boris karloff is as the trailer proclaimed him the king of monsters the man was a professional that's that's for sure uh, he, he really did work through a lot there towards the end you know he was having issues I, I know a lot of people don't really dig the movie as much as i do but i love curse of the crimson altar and i mean he's in that wheelchair the entire time but he's still just giving it his all i love it just to see him do his thing despite all these other issues, his his breathing issues, being not being able to walk back issues. The man was a pro. I mean, he gave us so many great performances and so many great films, including this one. I'm a big fan of this one. And you mentioned earlier the commentary that you listened to. That's available on the DVD, which looks gorgeous. It's a great transfer. Uh, it's, a, it's part of a collection. The Karloff Lugosi collection has this film, uh, Zombies on Broadway, Oh, what are the other two movies in that set? You'll find out. Isn't that one of them? Yeah, I know. That's the one with Kay Kaiser. Yeah, I love that movie too. Which which has a very weird ending. And I don't know why they felt necessary to do this, but at the end of the movie, the, uh, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Peter Lorre are apparently blown up by Kay Kaiser, who, by the way, was uh, had the College of Musical Knowledge, and he also had a big band kind of a thing going. 
Uh, he and his uh, band are trapped in a mansion for this whole movie. And uh, he has people like Ishka Bibble, and they have a dog that has Ishka Bibble's haircut. And the dog uh, runs out with a stick of TNT and apparently blows up Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Peter Laurie. And that's the end of the movie. But then Kay Kaiser comes out and says, well, I hope you all enjoyed yourself, but just so you know, Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, and Peter Laurie are real good friends of mine, and they're just fine. And it's like, okay. <laughs> it was an odd, an odd way to end the film. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, thank you for letting us know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, the Walking Dead was the other film in that set. So it's a four movie set. I believe it's two discs. It's a good set because you've got two commentary tracks that they look great. Uh, and this film is in widescreen, which is the first time I believe it's been released to the home market in widescreen. Yeah. You've got no excuse not to have this if you're a fan of Karloff or you're a fan of monster movies. Uh, and it's kind of ahead of its time, I feel like. You know, you could see a similar storytelling device, maybe even being used today where you've got a movie being made within a movie and then things start to go wrong. It's, it's really interesting just to kind of look at it from, from that point of view, that, that, that kind of sort of, well, like I said, film within a film storytelling device. And then of course you've got Karloff giving these great monologues and having so much fun playing the organ. You, you mentioned the walking dead. That was a very interesting performance because it put out by Columbia Pictures, and in a lot of ways, Boris is resurrected from the dead after being accused of wrongly accused of murder, and he actually goes after the people that actually committed the murder. But in no way does he ever actually touch them. Their own fear of Karloff causes them to fall out windows and crash cars, and you know he never actually does anything except accuse them. And his makeup is very reminiscent of Frankenstein's monster. Mm -hmm. And also because he has a white streak in his hair, the bride of Frankenstein as well. <laughs> so, oh yeah, yeah I can uh, see that. Yeah. So it's it's a very interesting take. And again, he's a, he's a very sympathetic monster in that. So it's it you can actually see on the box set, Boris Karloff is sympathetic monster, and Boris Karloff is just a horrible, evil, relishing every minute of it rat boogeyman. <laughs> so, <laughs> In fact, in uh, Mad Monster Party, it was a nicer Baron von Frankenstein than it was in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because before we wrapped up, I wanted to, to bring up Mad Monster Party. I, I've heard it from a couple of people, and then when we were testing last night, our connection, you brought it up too. And, and I guess how to say, I, I don't know why Joe and I fixated on Phyllis Stiller having her clothes ripped off. And, and Francesca, come Francesca on. Francesca has her dress ripped off. Puppet boobs. How could you not remember that? <laughs> now, I saw, I saw Mad Monster Party. I had my stepmother owned a movie theater. So I got to see these movies for free. And uh, I got to see Mad Monster Party on the big screen. And as it said in the poster, it was only a matinee showing. And I got to see it twice in one day. The first time I walked in on it in the middle where Dracula is trying to kill Felix and he's zooming down from the tree and every time Felix bends over to look at another sandwich and you go, cheese! Only what's with mayo. I don't like mayo. But what's this? Zoom! Cheese without mayo! Oh, but it's not in wax paper. I must have my food absolutely sanitary. <laughs> so that's the first thing I remember about when I saw that film. But when the, the cat fight, literally, because you hear going on, 
uh, between Francesca and uh, Phyllis Diller happens, uh, and she tears uh, Francesca's dress off, every boy from age 8 to 12 suddenly shot into puberty as we heard, Woo! (laughs) 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 Wow. Yeah, that they woo, they they really whooped it up there. I think a lot of uh, fans of redheads and big breasts happened that day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I could see that. She also showed all the other classics too, but the Vincent Price movies like uh, Tales of Terror. You look at it now, it just seems like comfort food. But I swear to God, back then, uh, us kids were screaming our heads off, and our and we're looking with horrifying anticipation to the next segment and in fact one kid sitting next to me going oh god what's gonna happen now and then we all <laughs> screamed like banshees when uh the facts in the case of m Valdebar happened and we had this close-up me again well yeah me still so i'm gonna cut in here because we wanted to avoid a spoiler about tales of terror now we gave you the spoiler warning about frankenstein 1970 fair enough wanted to make sure everybody knew we were going to talk about plot points and and kind of ruin the film but you didn't come here to hear about tales of terror so i'm gonna just skip over the spoiler that we talked about and just play the trailer instead every drop of blood feels the freezing paralysis of fear almost stopping your heart as edgar Allan poe unfolds his tales of terror you will meet the master of the mansion who loved and protected his wife with the strength of a supernatural love, even beyond life itself. I am in command here. You will do as I say. But I shall take what I desire. Your body and your soul, if I demand it. Then you'll enjoy the Black Cat's sardonically humorous tale. It all started at the Vintners' convention, where the lover of wine met the professional wine taster and introduced him to his wife, a darling who delighted in Dalians. What kind of a man are you anyway? Make love to my wife and doesn't even talk to me. You're insane. That may be, but... Very clever. Hmm. Help! Help! In this monstrous mausoleum of the living, you will witness fury far worse than a woman scorned. The fury of a dead woman's jealousy. Oh my gosh, he screams and screams. She also played House on Haunted Hill, and when... Uh... Yep, you guessed it. We also spoil a little bit of House on Haunted Hill. I assume most people have seen this one. I mean, this is one of the classic, one of the definitive Vincent Price films, as far as I'm concerned, as far as a lot of people are concerned. But you know what? Just want to avoid the spoiler there, too. But I've got a trailer. This is Vincent Price. I've been involved in many blood-chilling films like The House of Wax and The Fly, but never have I played in a more terrifying shocker than my new picture, The House on Haunted Hill. It's a story guaranteed to make you shudder with fright. See The House on Haunted Hill, if you dare. God, do we shout ourselves silly. 
<laughs> I, I, in a way, I feel sorry that I can no longer recapture those moments. Of, I was just life. about to say that. I'm just trying to imagine seeing these movies. Uh, you know, and I'm, I'm younger than you know a lot of the classic monster kids, traditional monster kids. So I never had a chance to see these things during their original run. But just trying to imagine what it would be like as a kid watching these movies and and not having that. How did they do that kind of mentality? Just getting wrapped up in the scares and the thrills and. And it's, I'll never have that. And uh, for that, I'm jealous, man. That that sounds awesome. Oh, by the way, here's a little observation about uh, Mad Monster Party that no one seems to have caught on to. Okay, okay. Uh, Alan Swift actually does Boris Karloff for one line. Okay. Because, of, because, because when they recorded Boris Karloff for, the, for Mad Monster Party, they did it in his apartment in England, and they did it in one session. And apparently they needed a bridge scene uh, where the where Boris has to say right this way, Felix. So if you listen really carefully, you hear it's Alan Swift going right this way, Felix. Hmm. And so so it can be credited that Alan Swift actually did all the male voices. Okay, okay, <laughs> no, fair enough. There, give him credit, man. Credit where credits due. That we weren't able to pick up on that on first viewing or even in repeated viewing is a testament to his uh, ability to do the voice. So, mm-hmm. yep. Is there anything else to say about Frankenstein 1970 other than I, I think people need to give it a, a look or a second chance if they've written it off? Uh, it, it's certainly a fun movie with great sets and great performances and good music. I have to say I love the film so much, not only because it is the first film that I believe I ever saw, and I have a great deal of nostalgia, but it just it, it, it impressed itself upon me as a result. But uh, I even wrote in Phantom of the Movies Videoscope in defense of Frankenstein 1970, don't let the naysayers keep you from experiencing Frankenstein 1970. It is, it's, it's a fun, horrific romp, and I am quite certain that back in 1958, when they showed it in theaters, children probably screamed their fool heads off. <laughs> <laughs> In a way, it's, it's, it's interesting because, as I said, when I saw it, I was five. It was the first horror movie I had ever seen, so I really didn't understand the tropes. So I'm not even sure at the time I realized that this was Frankenstein's monster and not a mummy because he's wrapped up in bandages through the whole thing. And I, I really didn't understand all the tropes, but probably everything that I eventually absorbed as uh, a, a viewer of... Uh, of monster movies probably started with this one. And strangely enough, in that laboratory, there isn't a single uh, Tesla coil or Jacob's ladder in, in the whole thing. There's not a single thing anywhere. <laughs> so, um, so that's a testament to the atomic engine, which brought the monster to life and steamy, horrible death. And you enjoy this movie so much, you shared with me a picture of a lobby card that you have. It's a Mexican lobby card. Uh, El Castillo de Frankenstein is how it's called there. And it's, it's, it's an interesting lobby card in that it's got, well... <laughs> It's got false advertising is what it's got. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's got the wrong monster on there. It's a cool monster. I, I love Mexican lobby cards and European you know, artwork for a lot of these movies that you know, were released overseas or in other countries because you get to see some of these uh, interesting takes. <laughs> these right. Now, for the viewers at home, and if, unless you, you know, at your website actually show the scan that I gave you, uh, in it, in the middle, is the usual uh, – 
photograph of the movie that you're used to seeing in most of the lobby cards. But on the sides, you have <laughs> Boris Karloff in his Bride of Frankenstein makeup. Why not? So, <laughs> you know, so it's it's promising you things that it possibly could not deliver. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but I'm sure it was quite effective um, in in what it is that it tried to do, which was get people's butts in seats to to see this film. Uh, I found it interesting that the the title, which I think translates to the Castle of Frankenstein, is actually kind of more in keeping with it because despite the fact that they try to in, impress upon us that this film is taking place in 1970, it looks suspiciously like 1958 regardless. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so Castle of Frankenstein, which is where it takes place, probably would have been a better title. I think, um, wasn't that one of the shooting titles or original title for the film? Maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to figure out where 1970 even comes into it. It's the future. It's, uh, I don't know. I know. There's not a single bell-bottom pants anywhere. Yeah. All the guys have the short hair from the 50s, and they're using the old typewriters, the Underwood typewriter, to, to do all their stuff. Also kind of interesting, they, they sort of hint at sort of these nice little sexual liaisons between the different cast members. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which... Given the the era that this is in, it was kind of racy for the for the time. Even though you don't see anything, but just them talking about it was kind of interesting. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, that's one of the reasons one of the girls uh, I think gets killed because you know he's trying to knock on the door to get her to let him in so that they can spend the night together, and then then the monster comes along, and then she opens the door for the last time. Will you just ah? <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, Frankenstein, 1970. You've got to see it. Dwight, you've been a great guest, man. It's been too long, and I want to thank you for doing this. Again, listeners, check out the books. Check out the audio production of The Vampire Tombs Mystery. And if you're in the area, Monster Bash, go meet Dwight in person. He said he'd sign something for you, so. Buy my books. Dwight, this is great, man. I really appreciate it. I'll make sure there's a link to your Amazon author page and to the Circle of Fears uh, site as well. And uh, let's have you back on later this year for something. Let's not wait too long. Yes, let's not. Gee, I w- you- <laughs> it's up to you, silly. It's your show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Huh? That is me, huh? Okay. <laughs> Thanks, again. <laughs> Thanks again, man. All right. Take care. And, uh, and all your listeners out there, I will give you my classic ending line to my murder mystery shows. May all of your crimes be perfect ones. Good night. Once again, Dwight, thanks for being on the show this week. Talking about Frankenstein 1970. I can't agree with him more. It really does deserve a lot more attention than it has gotten over the years. I feel like it is definitely underrated. And when you look at it and consider that the movie ends with Boris Karloff's face being on the Frankenstein monster, just a nice little tie wrap around. It's kind of brilliant, actually. Now, I mentioned the actor who plays Hans Himmler in this movie being the person who plays Frankenstein's monster in an episode of The Monkees, and Dwight corrected me, and he's right. Richard Keel did appear in the episode I Was a Teenage Monster of The Monkees. However, Mike Lane also played Frankenstein's monster briefly, the monstrous monkey mash, 
which I believe happened later in the run. I'm not really sure. I'm not up to speed on my monkeys, but uh, he was there too, as well as a vampire and a wolfman and such. So, so we're both right. The poster, the lobby card that he was mentioning that we talked about, the El Castillo de Frankenstein Mexican lobby card. I'm going to make sure that's available for you to view over at monsterkidradio.net. He took a really good picture of it for me to include in the show notes. So go check that out if you're interested and want to have a, a good chuckle about their um, ad campaign. Uh, you know, anyway, check that out. And again, check out Dwight's books. You can find them on Amazon and you can buy the CD version of the Vampire's Tomb Mystery over at circleofspears.com. It's a heck of a tale. I really enjoyed it. Again, Dwight, thank you very much, man. We'll have you back on. Later this year. Three macabre masterpieces. Bela Lugosi as Count Dracula, Lord High Priest of the Living Dead, begins a legend of fear as he claims the soul of his first victim with the mark of the vampire. Boris Karloff as the evil Fu Manchu, his passion for power twisting his brilliant mind as he revels in the horrors of human sacrifice and torture. Behind the mask of Fu Manchu. Frederick Marsh as the futuristic experimenter, Dr. Jekyll, using chemistry to expand his mind. Delving into the taboos of the unnatural. To free the primitive. Savage. Murderer, Mr. Hyde, in the screen's first classic portrayal of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Bella Lugosi, Mask of the Vampire. Boris Karloff, The Mask of Fu Manchu. Frederick March. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Torture. Terror. Together in a triple trip to the time when terror began. Now from MGM. Three immortal horrors never seen on the little screen. Hello everyone, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast the podcast about the films of Paul Nashi. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes, now, what is it that qualifies two southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain? And I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. Nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yes. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. Uh, yes. If you love beautiful women wearing 
incredibly short mini skirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks Sham- like melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, Yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. But the room was quiet. Had it been a nightmare? What woke him? Was the candle in the antique mirror moving? Was there something standing by the curtains? Was he mad? <laughs> The Crimson Cult. So terrifying they won't let us tell you about it here. She'd wandered alone. The passageway between the walls was damp and musty. She dropped her candle. And then I heard it. Now she has no head. It happened in Horror House. I was there. A nightmare combination of shock and terror. And you're invited behind forbidden doors. Horror House stars Frankie Avalon and Jill Hayworth. The Crimson Cult features Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee. See them together for the first time, but don't see them alone. Rated GP. Black Zoo. Starring Michael Gott, Gene Cooper, Rod Lauren, Virginia Gray, Jerome Cowan, Elisha Cook. Good bag. Children, I brought you here because we'll have to face a problem. The Black Zoo brings you the weirdest, most terrifying experience of your life. For here, the lion is king of killer beasts. The black leopard and the tiger. Prowling, claw-killing executioners. All honored by the bloodthirsty cult of animal worshippers. Their master, a man more animal than human. Inhumanly cruel to other human beings. You devil and needle me like I A murderer condemning a man to die by animal claws. Throw him in there. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank you for being along for the ride and being part of the show. One of my absolute favorite things about podcasting is getting feedback. So if you want to be part of the show and have your email read on the podcast, email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Or if you want, 
you can always call in and leave us a voicemail. Our voicemail line, it's a Google voicemail, which means it's got a three-minute limit, but if you can pack everything you have to say into that three minutes, call me at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. This is, of course, all available over on our website at monsterkidradio.net. We've also got links to our Facebook page and our Facebook group over here. Every single episode you can find from this website, you can find a list of every song, a list of every movie over here. We've tried to pack as much as I can into the website without, you know, overwhelming myself because I want to spend more time producing the show and doing other cool things like attending the panel, Gods and Monsters, H.P. Lovecraft's Horrifying Creatures at Wizard World Portland happening this weekend. This particular panel is happening 7.30, Friday night. I was invited to be on the panel by a friend of the show, Sean Hode, who's another really, really good author. I'm excited to be part of the panel. I've never been a panelist at a Wizard World, so this is a first for me. Thank you, Sean, for making that happen. And if you are in the area, I would love to meet you. Now, I'm going to be pretty late to the con on Friday because I've got that stupid day job thing I got to do. The panel's at 7.30, it runs till 8.15, and then I'll kind of hang out a little bit afterwards. But on Saturday, I'm going as a well, fan, I'm going to be wandering around, checking out panels, meeting people, and just kind of hanging out with my friend Tom Doffel, friend of the show, and it's going to be fun. I'm going to be bringing my recorder with me, so hopefully I can get some content for a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. Speaking of future episodes, next week. Now, I didn't think that we were going to do another Frankenstein episode, but again, happy accident, just kind of stepped into one. Fellow podcaster Court Psyops from the Cinema Psyops podcast contacted me and said, hey... Remember we were going to talk about Bride of Frankenstein at some point? And I said, yeah, let's do it. So next week, Frankenstein February continues. The Bride of Frankenstein. is actually scheduled to happen this weekend. Not while I'm at Wizard World, obviously, but uh, Court and I are going to meet up online and chat about this movie. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. And to talk about Bride of Frankenstein, I mean, anytime I can talk about Karloff, I'm going to take it. Love it. Love it. Okay. 
this is the end of the show. I want to thank everybody for being part of the show, for listening, for downloading, for sharing the posts on Facebook, for liking us on Facebook, for reviewing us on iTunes. Would love to get up to 100 reviews on iTunes, say, like by the middle of the year. So if you are an iTunes user and you haven't given us an honest review yet, please consider taking a few minutes to do that for us. But most importantly, just come back next week. Got more monster movies to talk about. Between now and then, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song One Megaton B. That belongs to the band The Inframen. Again, they're a cool surf band out of Providence, Rhode Island, You can find them kicking around there, I'm sure. But you can also find them online at inframen.bandcamp.com. You can buy the album live from the Mineral Kingdom. It was a New Year's 2016 recording. It's a great album, and they're a great band. And it's great that they let us play their music here on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook. Ciao. (laughs) 